Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, and uh, we are going to begin uh, today in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, we began last week. Last week was the first, first week of Lent, and as we travel through this, this uh, journey of Lent together towards Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter, we, uh, we began last week a, a sermon series that is exploring three great enemies of the Christian, oftentimes called the unholy trinity, Satan, sin, and death. These are the things we're going to be talking about over the course of the next few weeks. We began last week talking about who is Satan. Um, I'll sum it up by saying that uh, he's real and at work, and if that if that is difficult for you or kind of makes you roll your eyes or those sort of things, the sermon's online. Can't repeat it today. But we're just going to have to leave it there at that. This week, we're going to talk about how he works. What does he what do? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. We're starting about halfway through. Um, Paul says this, We would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Or some translations say schemes. We won't be outwitted by him because we are aware of his schemes. We need to be aware of his schemes how so that we can recognize them in him and resist them. I will say um, we tread dangerous ground here. We are dragging out the open things that like to stay hidden in the dark recesses of our hearts and minds. Things that are not easy to hear. Things that are not easy to preach. Either. So we're in this together this morning, okay? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not, not a fun three minutes that we have together, but important. So let us begin where our Christian life begins, in baptism. At the beginning of the baptismal liturgy, we are asked six questions as a part of our baptismal vows. The first three are renunciations or questions about what we reject as we start this new life as Christians. These three questions are this. Do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? all three of which we respond to by saying, I renounce them. So beginning the Christian life is a renunciation of the work of Satan who is in rebellion against God, of, uh, of a renunciation of the empty schemes and promises and deceits that we see seek to corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. And we see also that Satan tries to stoke the desires of our flesh that draw us from the love of God. Although his schemes and his empty promises and deceits cannot all be individually named in a Sunday morning sermon, I see four categories of the ways that Satan comes against us 
as the creatures of God. Number one, possession. Number two, tormenting. Number three, temptation. And number four, division. If you're visiting here with us this week, welcome uh, to Church of the Redeemer. Good Sunday to come. Um, It's going to be a big day. Buckle up. So here we go. Number one, possession. We see in the scripture this uh, this perhaps most spookiest way that, uh, that Satan works in us, that demons can possess a person. Yep, that's real. Um, we do not know the mechanics of how this works, but somehow demons can enter into a person. We see Jesus coming into contact with people who have unclean spirits, demons inside of them, and the demon oftentimes affects that person physically. They, uh, they often will bring physical fits and throw the person to the ground, or sometimes they even bring supernatural strength. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus steps off of a boat, and a guy comes running out of a graveyard uh, and, and appears before him. And it says this about, uh, about this guy, that he has an unclean spirit or a demon, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. In Matthew, it says that this man was so fierce that he uh, that no one could pass that way. So clearly he was harming himself and he was harming other people as well. This is the definition of corrupting and destroying the creatures of God. Does demon possession happen in modern day? Yes, it does. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that this stops. We can try to rationalize it away or say that we're too smart for this or too educated for this or that, that science has answered the questions, but nowhere in the Bible does it say that this has stopped. Now, remember, we're perfectly capable of notorious sin on our own without being possessed. But it can and it does happen. What about mass school shootings? Listen, however you feel about guns, This is firstly and primarily a demonic issue. To kill children. This is corrupting and destroying the creatures of God. Am I saying that every school shooter has a a demon? No, I can't claim to know that. But is it possible? Absolutely. What about serial killers? What about rapists and abusers? This is in line with with what the biblical description of what demons do, death and destruction. But there are things that are more subtle than these overt, monstrous kind of acts. What about corruption? What about false teachers? What about adulterers? So how do we resist possession? If demons can come into us, how do we resist this? One, we pray a lot. We recognize that, that, the, that this is a possibility in life and in the world, and we recognize it at work. And here's the thing. Don't invite demons in, and don't leave the door open for them to come in. If I told you somebody was going to rob your house, you'd lock the door. So lock the door. 
Easy things to avoid. The occult, magic, spells, incantations. These are prayers to demons. If we are not addressing God, we are addressing demons. Easy, low-hanging fruit. Things like Ouija boards, right? Where you, where you sit and pretend and play a game. But you are calling and speaking to the spirits in the room. The problem is, they will answer. Don't open the door. Don't invite them in. Horoscopes, psychic readers, anything that celebrates and studies evil, anything that looks for guidance against or apart from the will and working of God and his revelation in the scripture. Here's another way that we, uh, that we put ourselves in a vulnerable place where demons can enter into us an epidemic in our world right now, and we're going to talk about this a couple of different times this morning, pornography. Yielding to the lust in our own hearts, studying, opening our heart and mind to lust at the expense of others opens a door. The notorious serial killer Ted Bundy sat down with a pastor for an interview before his execution, and he told how he grew up in a solid Christian home whose parents worked hard to defend him and about how his addiction to pornography led him to violence. Here is his words. He said, listen, I've lived in prison for a long time now, and I've met a lot of men who are motivated to commit violence, just like me. And without exception, every one of them was deeply involved in pornography. Without question, without exception, deeply influenced and consumed by an addiction to pornography. There's no question about it. The FBI's own study on serial homicides shows that the most common interest among serial killers is pornography. Does that mean that everyone who has looked at porn now has a demon and is going to become a serial killer? No. But it does mean that the more that we yield to these types of behaviors, the more we swing open the door to let them in, the more vulnerable we are to their influence. So don't pursue the things of demons. Don't go where demons dwell. Pursue the things of God. Long for the Holy Spirit, hunger and thirst for righteousness. James tells us, and we will say this over and over again so we hear it this morning. James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. Resist him. Don't participate with him. We do not have to be afraid that demons are just going to come flying into us at any moment. But we need to avoid patterns of behavior that actually participate with the devil's work and invite them in. We must be proactive in seeking blessing, in protection, in participation, in community, in prayer, and scripture. Listen, get baptized. If you have not been baptized, get baptized. Say the vows. Come to know Christ. Let the community say vows. Get your children baptized. I know your Baptist grandmother might be angry with you that you baptize your child. And we love our Baptist friends and we love our grandmothers. But there's too much at stake to be worried about that to not bring our children into the waters of baptism. Let the community say their vows over your children. There is so much at stake. Let us recognize that we have an enemy who is seeking us and our children, and let us lock the doors of our hearts. Let us pray for our friends and family. Let our hearts and minds and souls be filled with the Holy Spirit, not those dark spirits who seek to destroy. But friends, when I say these things, do not begin to fear. 
Because fear itself is from Satan and demons, and they would love to have you in the place where you are constantly in fear of them. There is total, absolute, complete, unequivocal victory in Jesus Christ. Demons cannot stand in his name or in his glory or in the face of the truth of his gospel. And so we need to be aware of the schemes so that we are not deceived. But we need not fear when we know Jesus. If you don't know him, there is reason to fear. And he longs for you to come under the protection of his wings. So number one, possession. You're all still here. Okay, number two, (laughs) tormenting. Next up on the spooky list, the Bible shows us that Satan and demons can torment us from the outside. We see if possession is from the inside, tormenting can happen from the outside. In 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of a messenger from Satan that tormented him. And there's lots of speculation about what this is. Was it chronic physical pain? Was it a sin he struggled with? Was it depression? No one knows. But we do know that the name, of, the name Satan means accuser. And that he oftentimes accuses us from the outside. How does this manifest itself in our modern day? If you've ever worked with an addict, you have seen torment. Seeking a way out from under the accusation of the enemy to try to find hope from pain instead of the true healing of Jesus Christ, to just move to a place of numbness rather than victory in Jesus. The fentanyl crisis is not simply a medical problem, it is demonic. Another way that this tormenting works itself out in our modern culture, depression and anxiety. I'm not saying that everyone who experiences anxiety has a demon actively tormenting them. But at the very least, Satan is at work in this world to create a place that fosters an anxious culture. And that that culture sees it as normal and a part of everyone's life and that it cannot be resisted. But God longs for peace for you. He longs for your confidence That we should be anxious about nothing, Jesus says. Satan and demons want to keep us in fear and depression and anxiety. They want us to be overcome with shame and condemnation and anger and perpetual victimhood. And these are all what Satan and his demons would have you believe in our culture. But freedom can be found in Jesus. Deliverance can be found in Jesus. Hope and joy and the conquering of addiction and his cross takes away your shame. This is where we must know the voice of our shepherd so that we can recognize a false voice from a false shepherd who would lead us not to green pastures and still waters, but to corruption and destruction. Martin Luther The 16th century father of the Reformation had a personal and public battle with the work of the evil one. And he spoke often how Satan would torment him. He said, every night when I awake, the devil is there and wants to dispute with me. He goes on to talk about how Satan wants to dispute by saying, is is what you hear about God really true? Who are you to preach to the people? Who are you to lead this kind of reform in the church? They all talk about grace and forgiveness, but they don't all know how nasty you are. Here was Luther's advice. When Satan tells you that God hates sin and you sin, therefore God hates you and so you should despair, you should speak the grace of Jesus to him. 
Tell him that Jesus died to save sinners. Tell him that his grace is sufficient and that Jesus has removed your shame and given you hope. This is more than positive self-talk. This is speaking the name of Jesus against those who would oppose him and you. Now, here's Luther's next advice. And this is deeply theological, so stick with me. He says, quote, I have come to this conclusion when the arguments do not help. In other words, when it feels like there's accusation and you're answering and, and you've gone through this, your mind is spinning, right? He says, I've come to this conclusion when the arguments do not help, I instantly chase him away with a fart. <laughs> That's what he said, quote unquote, right? Okay, so what he means here is not that flatulence can drive out demons. That's not what he means. What he's saying is, Satan's accusations are silly in light of the gospel of Jesus. And if he's going to come with silliness, then let's answer him in a silly way. This is like when you're trying to have a serious conversation with a five-year-old, right? And, uh, and they're looking at you, and it seems like they're kind of tracking with you, and you're really leaning into a deep conversation, and they go... That's what he's saying. Like, when we, when we get wrapped up and our heads are spinning, sometimes let's just go... Because all of this silly mess in light of the truth of Jesus, these accusations, these things that you're saying to me are ridiculous. And so here is my in intellectual response. <laughs> Jesus makes all of his accusations lies. And so the devil looks silly. And Luther would say he cannot abide being mocked. So fart at him. <laughs> Satan's accusations hold no sway in light of the gospel. But Paul says that he had a messenger of Satan that tormented him. And listen to this. His thorn in the flesh. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12. His thorn in the flesh, he calls it, actually served to humble him to always remind him of his need for a savior, driving him to the grace of Jesus. So Satan's tormenting actually resulted in Paul's appreciating grace all the more and worshiping even more passionately, which must frustrate Satan immensely. So don't listen to the voice of the accuser. And when you have torment of pain or grief or, 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 grief or suffering, show the sufficiency of Christ to carry us through. Resist Satan's torments by frustrating him with your perseverance in the faith. Don't resist the temptation to reject and run away, but show him that his accusations are false by how you cling to Christ even in suffering. And let us intentionally fill our minds and hearts with truth and goodness. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So don't scroll through social media before bed and compare yourself with everyone else's lives so that you can give Satan ammunition to accuse you. Don't fill your head with your true po crime podcast and then wonder why you're afraid all the time. Think about the things of God. Instead, pray Compline, identify in Christ, and then go to sleep. And sleep well and comfortably and safely until the morning. Satan and his demons would torment Possession, 
tormenting. Number three, tempting. This is Satan's best known and most used trick. Adam and Eve, of course, in the garden, he tempted them to eat of the fruit that God had told them not to eat. He did not make them do it. He just simply suggested. And they were more than happy to comply. And so it is with us. Satan, when we say, oh, the devil made me do it. Nope, but he might have suggested it. And then we went, I'm in. So we all shouldn't always blame him. God didn't just blame Satan. He blamed Adam and Eve for how they responded to the temptation. Because Adam and Eve were tempted and they gave in. But there's a new man, a new Adam, who for 40 days at the beginning of his ministry was tempted by Satan himself. And that was Jesus Christ, who did not give in to temptation and has now rebooted the whole story. It is Christ's example that we should follow, to not give in to temptation. But temptation itself is not a sin. It's simply a nudge. It's presenting an opportunity or opening our eyes to it. And temptation is really about pursuing our misplaced loves or our disordered affections. In other words, when we love something and we're trying to avoid it, Satan going, look how great and nice it is. We go, you're right, I should really go that way. And so it's not just about beating our bodies into submission and legalistic rules. It's about changing our affections and our loves so that we're not even tempted anymore. Because we don't love the things for which he is tempting us. And this is why we come back so often to why worship is so important. Because it sets our loves in the right place so that we're not tempted to pursue the deceitful promises of other loves. We say, this is who I want to love. This is who I want to be with. It is Jesus. It is God in Trinity. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is His righteousness and His glory. And He, His way is what is right and good and brings true life and light. That's what worship is about. And so when Satan would come along and say, no, true life is found over here, we go, no, 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 nothing compares to this. And, but the way that Satan works is that he, he knows if it was just so easy to say, well, let's just choose the things of God and not the things of Satan, the end. But the way Satan works is that he likes to twist the word of God. Satan knows scripture better than we do. And he twists it. That's what happens in the garden, right? Is that he says to Adam and Eve, the way he tempted them, did God really say that you can't eat from this fruit and you would die? Right? He twi- he's twisting. Did he really say that? It's the same way that he came after Jesus in the wilderness too. He came after him going, hey, the scripture says, throw yourself off the temple and the angels will attend to you. Yeah, hey, you're hungry. It says in the scriptures you can turn these rocks into bread. He's twisting the scripture. A few modern examples of our culture of how some of the ways that Satan twists things that God made for good and then he sets a trap of temptation for us. Here's here's a big one right now. A theology of following your heart. It's the mantra of our culture to let your heart be your guide, to not let anyone change your heart. And then, and the reason this is so deceitful is that then God becomes a means to an end for whatever we want. If I desire it, if I feel it, if I want it, then he should give it to me. And if I don't want it, then he shouldn't give it to me. And when life doesn't work out under our sovereignty and our plan, we then blame God and question whether he exists. When we didn't actually let God be God to begin with, we were being God and telling him how it all should work. Right? That's following our own 
heart. And the problem is that Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things, that it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't know what's best for ourselves. And we need God to lead us and to guide us. But Psalm 37 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, verses like this taken out of context are the foundation of prosperity gospel preachers like Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, John Hagee, Creflo Dollar, and more. This is why Joel Osteen's church has 45,000 members, because that is a message that our itching ears want to hear. God will give us anything that we desire. The problem is, when you take Psalm 37 that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, it continues and it says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act and he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. God is not in the business of saying, tell me everything that you want and I'll gladly give that to you. He says, let me change the desires of your heart to line up with my desires that lead to life and to righteousness and justice and I'll gladly, as those desires line up, answer all of your prayers. But he will not answer prayers that hurt us or others or steal his glory. That's not what he does. And so oftentimes when we feel like God has disappointed me or let me down or we're angry because he hasn't done the things that I want him to do, it's because our desires weren't lined up with his. Now, of course, there's other times when we realize Someone has died. Someone is sick. Something has happened to us that is not a matter of the desire of my heart and, and I didn't get what I wanted and us throwing a tantrum. There are deep, difficult issues because we live in a fallen world. But all the more, those things are not given to us so that we question God, but rather for us to come and say, this is why the world needs your redemption, because we live in a sinful and broken world that is under the prince of the power of the air. It is Satan and his design that brings those things about that we would blame God for when it's the rebellion against God that has brought those things into play. Next, way that something that God has created for good that Satan twists in our culture. There's one more. I could do a hundred, a thousand, but we're going to do one more. Another huge one in our culture, sexual desire. We live in a sex-obsessed culture, and that is Satan's design. Sex is a gift from God for a man and woman in marriage, and through it, two people become one flesh in a miraculous way. He made it good and right and beautiful. And Satan would take that and twist it to lust in a simple act of physical pleasure disconnected from any spiritual meaning. And it becomes self-serving and it's not sharing and perhaps even creating a life with your spouse, but it's meeting your own needs. And it becomes isolated from the covenant of marriage and something, and it produces something that is broken rather than union. That is a gift that God has given us that Satan has twisted and has said, this is your own choice. This is your own. Look, you want this and it's good and it's loving. And so go and explore these things. And God is going, no, that's not the design. And it leads to many systematic social and global problems. Let me, let me go back to pornography again, right? When we take the God-given desire for his design for sex, that's a God-given desire. 
but we isolate from others, and we then sit in front of a screen and we objectify. We make objects out of people. We objectify women or men, and that, then that moves then from the privacy of our computer screens to objectifying men and women in the flesh, in reality. And then this leads to using them as commodities for our own for our own pleasure without regard to the cost to them. This is where prostitution and abuse and adultery comes from. And then an entire economy has been set up around pornography with the industry making $100 billion a year globally, more than all the professional sports combined. 4% of the entire internet is porn. 35% of all downloads are porn related. The little banner ads that pop up and paid subscriptions then fund a global sex trade of an estimated over 222 million people globally being exploited for sexual purposes. And we want to sit in front of our computer screens and roll our eyes at all of this and say, that's not me doing all of that. I'm just looking at some pictures and that's normal. And you have been fed a lie. It is us who are doing this. This is no victimless crime. This is no isolated normal part of the teenage life or, the, or what men do. And in fact, the most popular, the, the area, the demographic in which pornography is growing is in women. It is a lie of Satan to say that this is normal and victimless. And when we participate in looking at pornography, we are participating in the exploitation of people throughout the globe. This is how Satan works. And this all begins with something that God set up as good and life-giving. So we need to resist the temptation to accept the new normal of Satan's world and see God's normal in the scripture. That's what redemption is. It's bringing us back to the way that things are supposed to be. The normal that brings life and light and beauty. I could go on. God gave us wine to gladden our hearts, but Satan creates alcoholism and then sets Christians against each other so they fight about whether it's okay to drink or not. God gives us dignity in his image, and Satan would tempt us instead of celebrating the Imago Dei, the image of God within us, but, but he would have us celebrate pride and arrogance. God created music, and Satan gives us K-pop. <laughs> I did resist the Taylor Swift reference, though. Just You can be happy for me on that. It was late when I wrote that. So Satan tempts us, and he twists what is good into something that is some attractive and yet deceitful marred image of what it was supposed to be. He tempts us. Last one, number four. Possession, tormenting, temptation, division. What we see in the scripture is Satan is constantly trying to divide. God's design is unity. The picture of the new heaven and the new earth is one of unity with every tongue and tribe and nation. And we see that Satan's schemes bring about the opposite. 
We see Adam and Eve, and uh, after Satan's done his work, there's enmity between Adam and Eve, and then that passes from them to their children, where one of their sons kills the other, and then it spreads from them so far that by the time that we get to Noah, wickedness has spread over the course of the whole earth. Satan wants a divided world, and he's got it. What are some of the ways that he creates division? Well, there's obvious ones, of course. War, armed conflict, crime. But what about the more subtle ones? Let's just name a couple that are rampant in our 21st century American culture right now. We live in a culture of grumbling and complaining. And this brings about anger and conflict. Listen to Paul and to the letter of the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So he's just said, you gotta, you got to show the world that's, that's living in a different way. You, you show them that you're children of the creator God and that he exists and you shine in the darkness and all of these big, huge words that he's calling us to. And what does it come down to? Stop grumbling and complaining. We, we are in a culture that is, uh, that is grumble-filled and gossip-filled and our grumbling and gossip is participating with Satan. It stings, doesn't it? Stings me. What a different world we would live in if we didn't grumble against one another and we truly followed God's word in Philippians and we sought unity. Another way in our culture that is an epidemic is being easily offended. Satan has made our culture so sensitive that we are looking for offense and we're finding it even if it's not intended. And when it is intended, we have no intention to forgive them. This charge is often lobbed at millennials and younger generations, but let me tell you something. It's true across all generations. If you want to learn, preach. <laughs> Second Timothy 2 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Jesus is about grace and mercy and unity, to forgive as you have been forgiven. And Paul tells us to make every effort to maintain the bond of peace. And Jesus even tells us to pray for and love our enemies. Satan is about anger and bitterness and resentment and accusation and the importance, the self-importance of being right ourselves. And so we place our own will and our own preferences at the center. And then anyone who differ needs to be sh shouted down or isolated or removed or insulted on social media or gossiped about and in so doing in the name of justice which is a God thing we are captured by Satan to do his will don't take the bait offense is a bait what are you going to do with it you have the opportunity to be offended will you sin or will you pursue righteousness will you divide more deeply in your self-righteous anger or you love your enemies, quickly forgiving, giving the benefit of the doubt, and endure evil patiently. 
There's so many more examples I could give. God gives us a love for story because he works through story. But Satan uses the isolation of Netflix that keeps us from even knowing our neighbors. The fact that we build back porches and not front porches anymore because we don't want to even deal with the people who are out front of our house. Suffice it to say that when there is division and enmity and brokenness and isolation and war and conflict in the family or the church or the nation or your workplace, these are the designs of Satan. So resist the temptation towards division. Strive for unity. Don't grumble. Forgive and ask for forgiveness If your marriage is suffering, don't go through it alone because this is not just about communication strategies. It's a war for your very soul. Be aware that Satan wants nothing more than for humanity to be divided. So let me wrap this up this way. How do we resist these schemes of Satan? 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says, I'm afraid, Paul says this to the Corinthians, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. How do we not let this happen? How do we be aware of his schemes and how do we actively resist? Because again, James tells us, resist the devil, actively resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Not that he'll get tired and wander off. He will flee because he cannot stand in the resistance of Christians in the name of Jesus. Don't give in and then justify your actions. Don't try to remove the conviction that we have by calling sin righteousness. Instead, let's combat sin in the name of Jesus. There are three more questions that are asked of us at our baptism. The first three were renunciations. The next three are about what we accept. Do you turn to Jesus and confess him as your Lord and Savior? And we respond, I do. Do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments? And we say, I do. And then we're asked, will you obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? We don't respond, I do. We respond, I will, the Lord being my helper. We resist in these ways. We turn to Jesus. Grace upon grace, mercy, light in the darkness, life, truth, joy, peace, all found in Jesus. There is no other way to resist the schemes of the evil one except in the name of Jesus who is the victor. The gospel reveals that all of Satan's slick words are lies. Repent and believe. Come to know this Jesus. Be baptized into his church. And then we eat the scripture. It says, do you joyfully receive the Christian faith? We eat this. this the, the scripture that says, your words are like honey on my lips. That man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we don't eat, we die. If we don't have the scripture, we die. Because we have no way of knowing the truth or the revealed picture of who God is and how he wants us to pursue him and what life and light really is unless we have the scripture. And so we eat it. This is where we find truth and reality and the ability to be able to divide right from wrong. And then we live a life intentionally pursuing a life in God under his grace and not earning, but not lazily or half-heartedly. Satan would be just as happy as if you were against God. If you can't get you to be against God, then he'll just have you be apathetic. Half-hearted, lukewarm, showing up on a Sunday, not thinking about Jesus the rest of the week. 
Satan would love to have you in that place, inoculated against the gospel. And we must pursue Christ with passion and vigor, not to earn our salvation, but because Christ's love compels us, intrigues us. We trust that true life is found in him, and this disarms the temptations of Satan and arms us to be able to go and be a part of the redemptive work in the world. And this is the last question of the baptismal liturgy is not asked to those who are being baptized, is asked to the community. It says, will you who witness these vows do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ? And we answer with a hearty, we will. Luther said no man should stand alone when he opposes Satan. And the church is here to link arms in the battle as we walk in the victory of Christ. You need somebody watching your back. You can't do this on your own. We need each other in this work. And truly, friends, there is a battle for our souls. So I ask you these questions. Do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? Stand firm, church. Do not be ignorant of the devil's schemes, and yet do not be afraid, for victory is assured in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And let us stand together in the grace and glory of Jesus Christ, before which Satan shudders and flees. Pray with me. Discussing these things of shadow, Father, do not bring us joy. These aren't the things that we want to talk about or the things that we want to deal with or even admit are are true in our own lives. But Lord, Help us to not be ignorant of the schemes of Satan. Help us to be aware of where he has a foothold in our lives, of where we have been complicit with him, of where we have, where we have listened to his lies. And then don't let, us, don't let him keep us there by shame and conviction and anger and by making us believe that there is no hope for us. But let us see the light of Christ shine into our lights into our lives to set us free from this oppression. Where we hold shame, let us put it at the foot of the cross. Where we have cowed under the accusations of Satan, let us stand and point to him and speak the name of Jesus into him that his accusations of condemnation have no place in our lives because there is now no condemnation because of the victory of Jesus Christ. Let us repent and believe. Let us break free from the sin that so easily entangles. Where Satan has influence in our lives, in this room, or in our church, in the name of Jesus, we cast him from this place. And make us a church, Lord, that shines like stars in a crooked and depraved generation, that loves that crooked and depraved generation with the love of Christ and brings the truth and healing of the gospel to them. And may our ears be deaf to the words of Satan, seeking only your glory and your spirit and your life until the day when you return and you crush Satan under your feet. It is in your name that we pray.